0: computer initialize hollow suite Hi everyone and a warm welcome back to the sci-fi feminist podcast I really hope that you enjoyed the previous episode on Ryan the Last Dragon If you haven't listened to it yet it is episode 5 a light-hearted feminist analysis of Ryan the Last Dragon Please have a listen to it, and I hope that you really enjoy that episode. Today's episode will be the last of the series on second wave feminism. And in today's episode, I will be talking about cultural feminism, which is considered to be a branch of second wave feminism and motherhood. So I will be continuing the discussion of Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Catherine Janeway, So I hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you haven't listened to the rest of the series on second wave feminism, please be sure to do so. I think uh, it is all good foundation for this discussion that I'm going to have today. Right, so let's get right into it. Cultural feminism was a third school of second wave feminism that is broadly associated with the second wave and that was starting to be theorized towards the end of the 20th century so radical feminism and early liberal feminism those are more the the feminism of the 60s and the 70s but then towards the late 80s and early 1990s uh, feminists started talking about this thing called cultural feminism cultural feminism advocates for gender difference so in my opinion it accounts for a more positive portrayal of motherhood and femininity for these three heroines that I discussed in the previous episodes as well. Two key authors for cultural feminism are Mary Daly, who focuses on reclaiming negative words used to refer to women, such as hag, crone and bitch, and re-imbuing them with positive associations. I will give the texts in the description box so that you can look them up and read them if you would like to. Another one is from Andrea Collard, who presents one of the earliest eco-feminist projects, which broadly aligns women's oppression directly with the dominion of nature by men. I also talked about this in Raya and the Last Dragon, as I thought that Raya presents an interesting take on eco-feminism and an eco-feminist portrayal of nature and women. So if you would like to know more about ecofeminism, listen to episode 5 and maybe I will do more on eco-feminism in the future. So cultural feminists, in contrast to early liberal feminists and radical feminists, believe that women's characteristics and values are for the good and are in fact superior and ethically prior to men's and should therefore be upheld. To briefly recap, the early liberal feminists and radical feminists kind of denied femininity, and they rather advocated for an androgynous agenda, which saw the positive association with masculine traits and women. So as I have mentioned in the episodes on liberal feminism and radical feminism, these second wave action heroines, which are Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Catherine Janeway, They are androgynous in terms of their physical appearance, their attire, and their character. But, interestingly, they also display traits that are are historically associated with femininity. Characteristics such as emotion, intuition, and nurture are displayed in Ripley, Sarah Connor, and Captain Janeway. And from a cultural feminist perspective, instead of these feminine attributes causing them to descend into negative tropes of femininity such as the damsel in distress the possession of these traits in my opinion has the potential to liberate them why do i say that in ripley's case actually her feminine personality qualities often aid in her survival so here are a few examples in aliens a dichotomy is set up between masculinity, which proves to be ineffective against the aliens, and femininity, which ultimately defeats the alien queen and survives. So for example, the Marines and Aliens, they were quite funny and when I watched the movie I thought like, okay first of all it was pretty bad acting or maybe that was the point, but they're really like overt in their display of machoism. There's this one interesting scene where there's the female Marine and the male Marine, and she's really buff. And then I think her name is Vasquez. Yeah, she's Vasquez, and she controls the heavy weapons. So she's busy doing doing pull-ups, and then the one Marine asks her, Hey Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? And then she says, No, have you? (laughs) So that was pretty uh, funny. I thought that was funny. Um, Anyway, so we can see how, like, macho and masculine these marines are portrayed. So, in Aliens, these macho marines are the exact opposite of the empathic and intuitive Ripley in their mechanical, violent, and totally anti-intellectual approach to the xenomorphs. So, when the captain briefs them, Vasquez, she's, like, really confident and macho, and she says... I only need to know one thing and he's like what and he's like where they are and then she kind of points her gun so it means like they have this really direct violent approach and she just needs to know where they are so that she can shoot them and since these uh, creatures bleed acid and they are really powerful and strong as the robot Ash describes it in Alien the perfect specimen this does not work so the these marines obvious display of masculinity and bravado throughout the film kind of does not help them survive actually the only ones that do survive here's a spoiler are ripley hicks and the little girl Newt. so they all die in the process so their masculine violent and direct approach does not work So despite their display of masculinity and bravado, it is Ripley through her more indirect, inventive, resourceful, intuitive and what cultural feminists would call feminine approach to the aliens that survive and that make it out alive. A very interesting turn of events and I think a very interesting comment on militarism and violence and I think the US military in general. So, in Alien Resurrection, the fourth Alien movie, a similar dichotomy is set up between masculinity and femininity. The resurrected Ripley displays an even more apparent femininity than that of Ripley in Aliens, due to her heightened intuition and her deep connection to the Alien Queen, who represents nature at its most primal. So, actually, Ripley in Aliens is quite tough. Um, You see that classic picture of her holding the child in one hand in the and the gun in the other hand. And um, so the Ripley in Alien Resurrection, she's even more feminine, or she's a bit more feminine than the Ripley in Aliens. She even has longer hair, and for the first time she wears an outfit that kind of shows off her body a little bit more. So I think that was quite interesting. Maybe it is to contribute to this idea that she has a heightened intuition and this deep connection to this primal alien queen and to nature. So, the crew from the cargo ship called the Betty, who are a group of mercenaries, as well as the scientists that cloned Ripley, portray traits associated with masculinity and the outsiders, which are Ripley Call. So, Ripley Call is the female android played by Winona Ryder, and Dom, who is a paraplegic. These three characters are more aligned with femininity. So the scientists symbolize patriarchy and its attempt to control the female body, like I explained in the episode on radical feminism, and the male crew members from the Betty display a violent approach to the xenomorphs, similar to that that we see in Aliens with the Marines. But once again, and here is another spoiler, Brute strength and science prove to be ineffective against the aliens, and it is Ripley, through her intuition and intimate connection with the xenomorphs, as well as Call, which is the female android, who is symbolized as the opposite of the patriarchal and inhumane humans in the film, and Dom, the paraplegic, who lacks the physical strength associated with masculinity that make it out alive and that that survive. Actually, the other crew members... um, some of them face pretty gruesome and violent deaths. I think the captain of the Betty is one of the first to go, which I think is a very interesting comment on patriarchy and on his machoism. Then moving on to Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager. Her feminine attributes often save Voyager and its crew from certain destruction. So there's this one theorist, her name is her surname is Bowring. She's of the opinion that Janeway's intuition rarely leads to her success, but I totally disagree with that. If you've watched Voyager, you will see that there are many episodes where Janeway's intuition and her more caring traits actually really aid Voyager a lot, especially in terms of survival. So here are a few examples. I will also give these episodes again in the description if you would like to go and watch them. So in the episode Counterpoint, Janeway uses her instincts to discern the intentions of a manipulative alien and with it she ultimately rescues her crew and a group of refugees. In another episode called Hope and Fear, Janeway's intuition not to trust a message from Starfleet that claims to be able to get Voyager home swiftly prevents her and her crew from being assimilated by the Borg. And Janeway's compassion for her crew and other species also saves Voyager on multiple occasions. In the episode called Night, Janeway decides to aid a group of aliens rather than handling, handing them over to their enemy who is using their region of space to dump theta radi- radiation, even though the alien's enemy offer to help Voyager out of the desolate region. So initially it appears that Janeway's compassion will get Voyager stranded in the sector for two years, but due to her care for the species, the aliens ultimately help Voyager escape the region through a vortex. And this episode was quite interesting too in showing Janeway's humanity. So what happens in this episode is that she actually locks herself up in a room for two or three months after they've entered this region of space called the void where there is no there aren't any stars or planets or there's nothing within like um I, I don't know how many light years I forgot the exact number but like, on a two-year journey, there's not going to be anything on their path. So, at this point, Janeway kind of isolates herself in her room, and she reflects on the choice she made to strand Voy- Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. Now, this is also, it's not necessarily a feminine trait, and I don't want to say that, because that is very, um, verges on essentialism, But that is not a trait that you see in male captains like Captain Kirk and um, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Um, Okay, I can't really say that because I haven't watched the original series or The Next Generation, but from what I've seen in the Star Trek movie featuring Jean-Luc Picard, there is not this like inner reflection and contemplation, Of what they did, who they are, and the consequences of their choices. So um, maybe this is not quite relevant to this discussion, but I do think it added a very important layer to Janeway's characterization, and it reveals a bit more of who she truly is, instead of this kind of macho facade that she puts up throughout the journey, and kind of her pretending everything is okay. Um, It's nice to see some vulnerability. I guess that's what I'm trying to say so moving on uh, there's another episode called the void and in this episode Janeway again she focuses on making alliances rather than stealing from other ships in order to escape another desolate area of space so those are only a few examples but I think it makes my point If you watch the seven seasons of Voyager, there are many more places where we see that Janeway is actually quite compassionate. And um, yes, so moving on to Sarah Connor, she is a bit more tough and masculine than Ripley and Janeway. But as we see in Terminator 2 especially, her compassion, her inventiveness and her resourcefulness, as Ripley is described by another author called Caldwell, these aid in her and John's survival. So Sarah Connor realizes in the beginning of Terminator 2 that she will not be able to escape the mental institution by using brute force, and she rather employs a more indirect approach. Sarah Connor successfully uses only a paperclip, a syringe, and cleaning materials to escape from the heavily, heavily guarded institution. And instead of killing the guards, she holds them hostage until the others let her out. So I think that her escape is definitely not the type of approach that a masculine hero would have taken. We can just look at the Terminator, for example. Only a few minutes later, he then bursts in, blasting open walls with his shotgun and like driving through walls and through windows. Um, Sarah Connor's approach is much more indirect and, by extension, more feminine. So in another instance, Sarah Connor's compassion also leads her to abort assassinating Miles Dyson, who is the person responsible for inventing Skynet. And the invention of Skynet, as you know, is supposedly the thing that causes the end of the world or judgment day. So by keeping Dyson alive, she manages to break into the labs where all his research is kept and destroy it. And because she did this, she ultimately um, avoids Judgment Day and she saves humankind. So Judgment Day never happens because his research never happened. So you can see that all three of these action heroines actually display some feminine traits too. They're not only acting like men but or like male heroes, but they have a lot of feminine traits too. So despite these arguments cultural feminism has and this is understandable it's been often been accused of perpetuating essentialist views of women so what essentialism means it means that it assumes that some female qualities also displayed in these action heroines such as kindness care and nurture are innate to all women, and that a woman must have these properties in order to be considered a woman at all. Obviously that is problematic for many reasons, because not all women are kind, nurturing, all of those traits, just like not all men are aggressive and violent. So um, I think this is a common um, problem in representation. But anyway, let's move on. So, these criticisms launched against cultural feminism have also been pointed out in discussions of Ripley and Captain Janeway, especially because both of these heroines are always implicitly linked to the Earth and to nature. For example, in the beginning of Aliens, Ripley's face fades into a shot of the Earth, which also prefigures her role as surrogate mother, that she takes on later in the film when she adopts the little girl, Newt. Also, Voyager's homeward journey, in contrast to other Starfleet ships led by male captains that traveled outward into space and not inward home, stereotypes Janeway as a homemaker and it also ties her to the earth and to nature like it does for Ripley too. Now obviously, The idea that women are closer to earth and to nature is the root of many problems because it considers women more primitive, Uh, women are only there to bear children and to reproduce, and it links women to nature while it links men to culture and to science. So obviously there's many problems with this. (laughs) So a quality that has been historically linked with women, earth and nature that is further perpetuated through equating Ripley and Janeway with nature is obviously motherhood, like I mentioned. So motherhood is actually a topic that is central to cultural feminism. So if we look at the discussions of radical feminism and early liberal feminism, motherhood is a huge issue because especially like Firestone, she suggested that, you know, motherhood and also Simone de Beauvoir, they can kind of said that motherhood is the thing that subjugates women. It is the thing that oppresses women. Because of motherhood, women don't have equal rights or women are not equal to men. So, this is a big issue for second wave feminists, especially the early liberal and radical feminists. Actually, they did not advocate motherhood. They. They didn't say this, but I think their arguments lean more towards like not having children (laughs) or if you have children, uh, doing so on your own terms. So with artificial reproduction, all of those things I discussed in the episode on radical feminism. So in contrast, for cultural feminists, certain female roles, especially motherhood, have been devalued by men. And it is therefore, for cultural feminists, they believe it is feminism's task to reclaim and to celebrate these roles. Adrienne Rich's discussion of motherhood in her book of Woman Born particularly informs a cultural feminist agenda, and her conceptions of how motherhood can be liberating for women are also evident in representations of all the th- all three heroines I discuss in this episode. So Adrienne Rich, this is quite an interesting book, and actually I really enjoyed this book because it's not so academic. It's not as academic as The Second Sex, as The Feminine Mystique, and as The Dialectic of Sex. Um, She actually initiates her discussion by introducing a really personal and subjective account of her experiences she had while raising three children. actually this account um, seems quite traumatic. Um, Actually her experience of having children that she describes in this book is not a very good or positive experience. So from her personal account, and this kind of resonates with Friedan's suspicion about the experiences of young housewives and mothers in the 1950s, it becomes apparent that for Adrienne Rich 20th century motherhood had become nothing less than, I quote her words, penal servitude. Okay, that is quite a a hectic way to describe motherhood. So for her, it it has become penal servitude. So she asserts, however, that motherhood need not be this way. And she explicitly distinguishes between two meanings of motherhood, which is the and I quote the potential relationship of any woman to her powers of reproduction and to children and the institution which aims at ensuring that that potential and all women shall remain under male control. So for Adrienne Rich it is this institution rather than motherhood itself that I quote has ghettoized and degraded female personalities or no not personalities potentialities so to validate her argument adrian rich identifies various factors that led to the institution of motherhood that has oppressed and burdened women for centuries these factors include a familial social ideological political system in which men by force direct pressure or through ritual tradition law and language and customs etiquette education and the division of labor determine what women shall or shall not play determine what part women shall or shall not play institutionalized motherhood then for rich is therefore problematic because it and I quote demands of women maternal instinct rather than intelligence selflessness rather than self-actualization, relation to others rather than the creation of self. And it further perpetuates stereotypes that maternal love is selfless and that a mother is a person without further identity. Rich thus explores an alternative to these assumptions of motherhood in 20th century society which is an ancient, pre-patriarchal society in which this institution of motherhood did not exist. So she traces the history of female goddess worship and the Great Mother, who existed in gynocentric societies millennia ago that have women centered social organizations. Rich notes that in images of the Great Mother, Even while suckling an infant, she is for herself. Rich thus argues that images of the pre-patriarchal goddess cults did one thing and I quote, they told women that power, awesomeness and centrality were theirs by nature not by privilege or miracle. The female was primary. Furthermore, in this pre-patriarchal society Before motherhood became institutionalized, all the current taboos associated with motherhood and also with menstruation were celebrated for their transformative power. So in this way, Adrian Rich highlights motherhood's empowering potential as it existed in ancient societies. Hey, so I found this to be a very interesting argument and I think of all the books on second wave feminism I read, I enjoyed hers the most. Um, her arguments are quite compelling and convincing. So another author said that the conclusion of Rich's arguments in her book of Woman Born is that, and I quote, motherhood gives women power. And for me, actually, I totally agree with this. I recently uploaded an abstract to my blog. I will put the link in the description of a paper I wrote that talks about motherhood in contemporary fantasy cinema. So I looked at Mary Poppins as a basis for my arguments. And then Miss Peregrine from Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. uh, Mrs. Zimmerman from the house with the clock in its walls, and also Maleficent, played by Angelina Jolie, so the new version of Maleficent. And I argued that actually for these contemporary fantasy heroines too, um, motherhood gives them power, or that is their key or core empowering aspect. So unfortunately, this article is posted in a journal that's not open access, uh, so you will need inst- uh, like, to buy it, or you can get um, access from a university institution. But you can at, re- re- at least read the abstract on my blog and, uh, and tell me what you think, if you want. Okay, so for Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor, and Captain Janeway, despite the fact that they are in various ways manifestations of liberal and radical feminist conceptions that disregard motherhood, Um, and I discussed this in those episodes, it is significant that they also remain mothers of either biological or non-biological and human or alien children. So although Rich's position definitely has its limitations um, because it still kind of verges on essentialist views of women, the emphasis on all these three heroines' roles as mothers embodies cultural feminism's celebration of motherhood. Even though their motherhood has often been claimed to undermine their feminist potential, at least from a cultural feminist perspective, their motherhood becomes, and I I think this is um, the core, one of their greatest sources of strength, and it empowers and emancipates them instead of oppressing them. So, in a lot of scholarly literature, Ripley, and actually the entire Alien franchise, is discussed in relation to motherhood, but not through a cultural feminist lens, or through the richest theories in particular. So, most of the time, actually, um, when they mention motherhood for Ellen Ripley, they talk about it negatively. For some theorists, Ripley's nurturing impulses that are directed toward her cat in Alien, then to Newt in Aliens, and then to the Alien Queen inside of her in Alien 3, and then the newborn, which is like the hybrid alien in Alien Resurrection, many people say that it greatly undermines her feminist potential. Okay, I don't really agree with that, but... um, this is what they say so this author his surname is wood he says that the focus on ripley as a mother figure in aliens is central to what laura mulvey um i think i mentioned her in episode two which is an introduction to second wave feminism and media representation so if you want to learn about laura mulvey please listen to that episode But Ripley as a mother figure is central to what Laura Mulvey describes as the devaluation, punishment or saving of the guilty object, as Ripley is apparently being punished in the film for being a bad mother to her daughter, who she left behind to serve on the Nostromo, and effectively being offered redemption through the adoption of Newt. Um, So just on a side note, in the... Cameron director's cut of Aliens there is a scene which reveals that actually Ripley had a daughter her name was Amanda Ripley and that Amanda Ripley died at the age of 66 Um, obviously before Ripley was taken out of stasis so Ripley ultimately missed her daughter's entire life and um, now they say that she's being punished for it in Aliens because she goes through so much difficulty and alien infestations and trauma and then that her adoption of nude kind of redeems this character of her. Uh, If you would like to find out more about Ellen Ripley's daughter, and I thought this was so cool that they did this, um, in 2015 there was a video game released. It was called Alien Isolation and it basically follows the story of Ellen Ripley's daughter Amanda Ripley. And I will definitely do an episode on this a bit later, but Amanda Ripley then also encounters a xenomorph on one of the space stations, and she has an experience very similar to her her mother's experience when while she's on that station, and um, there was this really cool thing they did at the end they they played a tape. So the whole point of the game is to reach the tape that is Ellen Ripley's last recording to her daughter. So I think that was really moving for me. I really loved that. And um, on that tape we hear Sigourney Weaver's voice. So they actually got Sigourney Weaver to reprise her role as Ripley for that voice note. And then Ripley kind of leaves this really touching message to her daughter, which says like, there was a problem on the ship, you know, but I'm okay and I'll see you soon. So um, I think that that video game was really good if you're into video games. And um, if you're not, they did so there's an Alien Isolation novel too, if you're interested in reading. It basically follows the events of the video game, but it gives other details that are not explored in the video game. So you can read the Alien Isolation novel. Then there's also a mini-series on YouTube. Also, it's um on the Alien Anthology YouTube channel. So maybe I will post the link in the description too, so that you can go and watch it. It's a mini-series they did. Unfortunately, the animation is really bad. I think they didn't have a big enough budget, but it's basically a miniseries on YouTube. Uh, I think it's about seven episodes and it kind of follows the story of Amanda Ripley. So we see a lot going on for Amanda Ripley too. And we really see that lineage, you know, Ripley's lineage in Amanda Ripley Um, decades after Alien was released but anyway I'm going off topic here but um, I really loved that video game it was really cool it was very scary many times I had to switch off the Xbox and then just breathe for a while but um, it's a very good game okay anyway so um, other theorists they argued that Ripley's motherhood allows her to act as the hero while still remaining safely contained within the patriarchal social order so this other author would he even criticizes cultural feminism suggesting that it reinforces women's assumed connection with motherhood and therefore implies that being female means being always already a mother but it's not only ripley but there are also apparently okay well i agree um other negative representations of motherhood within the alien franchise so one of them is the alien queen so one theorist notes that both the alien queen in aliens and the ship's computer who is addressed as mother in alien represent a monstrous version of femininity or what barbara creed terms the monstrous feminine i will talk about barbara creed in a later episode so don't worry about that so mother sees the crew as expendable and is aligned with the sinister company and the alien queen is a primal mother defined solely by her devouring jaws and her prolific egg production. So because of these two things, um, this inadvertently implies that monstrosity is unmistakably female and explicitly defined with mother- as motherhood or identified with motherhood. It could also further be argued that a dichotomy is set out between the monstrous and primal mother of the Alien Queen and then the nurturing chosen cultural motherhood of Ripley. Anyway, despite the various criticisms of the construction of Ripley as a mother in the Alien franchise, through a cultural feminist lens, it can also be read as empowering for her following a cultural feminist argument, one theorist called Caldwell sees the alignment of Ripley with motherhood, and therefore nurture, as facilitating a positive representation of femininity that is both resourceful and nurturing, and not the one or the other. Other theorists, they are called Sarah Bach and Jessica Langer, they provide an analysis of Ripley's adoption of Newt that especially denies what Adrian Rich would see as institutionalized motherhood that disempowers women. Now this is a quote from one of their papers that they wrote. The paper is in a really nice little book called meanings of Ripley Actually, this book was pretty hard to get a hold of, but I will provide the, description in, the name in the description if you would like to read it. It's just four papers, but it's a very useful book for analyzing Ellen Ripley. So yes, this quote is from this book. So I quote, Ripley's motherhood of Newt is unconnected to the process of childbearing as Newt is her surrogate but not her biological daughter. The relationship, therefore, represents a fracturing of the normatively sexual mode of motherhood in her emotional connection to Newt, despite her lack of biological connection, rather than because of the connection between a mother and a daughter. That is the biological connection between a mother and a daughter. It is an active and chosen connection rather than a passive biological connection and functions as a site of Ripley's power. In this way, then, the authors argue that the bond between Ripley and Newt does not position Ripley within the confines of the nuclear family, but rather it is a bond that is outside of the patriarchal ideal of the biological nuclear family as a primary unit of society, and it is therefore emancipating. While this binary between the good and the bad mother could also be problematic, it may indicate on the one hand, patriarchal anxieties surrounding female reproduction as uncontrollable and destructive, embodied by the alien queen, but on the other hand, from a cultural feminist perspective, a conception of motherhood that is not oppressive, which is embodied by Ripley. Now, moving on to Sarah Connor, there's this one theorist, his name is George Faithful. He says that Ripley's and Connor's depiction as mothers present the salvation of mankind and the ultimate human beings. So, mankind is saved, not by these action heroines that are only masculine, but they save the world because they are mothers and because of their motherhood. So, let me explain. So first the theorist argues that in order for Sarah Connor to become a warrior she first had to become a mother and her status as the mother of John is the source of her heroism okay so if Sarah Connor was not the mother of John Connor who is supposed to save the world one day from the machine apocalypse then she would not have become a heroine in the first place And i thought this was pretty cool um it's like the matrix if he didn't take the blue pull was it or the red pull if he didn't take the pole then there would be no movie so um if if sarah connor was not the mother of john connor then there would be no sarah connor the action heroine because she would not have had to defend her uh, pr- or protect her son from the Terminator. So her motherhood is the kind of reason for her becoming a heroine. Furthermore, John also learns all the skills that will eventually aid him in leading the future rebellion against the machines from his mother. Suggesting that actually she is the savior of humankind, as there would be no future for humanity without her giving birth to and raising John. So, um, and I read an article on this, actually it said that Sarah Connor is the true hero or the true savior of humankind because she raised John Connor and because um, she gave him all of her skills that she had. So yes, significantly John also uses his mother's surname. He's not John Reese, (laughs) who is his father, but he is John Connor and his father is rarely mentioned. Which further implies that John's heroism primarily stems from his mother. So those are a few arguments. Obviously, those are one point. That's one point of view. It's not absolute, but um, I kind of like that reading of Sarah Connor. Okay, so although Ripley is a warrior in Alien before she becomes a mother, so this is in contrast to Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor is a mother first and then she becomes a warrior, but Ripley is a warrior first and then she becomes a mother. She only fully displays her toughness or her heroism after she has developed maternal feelings towards Newt, the little girl, and ultimately risks her life in order to face off against the Alien Queen and to save Newt so here is a spoiler alert again in the end of aliens actually they they make it off the planet but then newt um got taken by an alien to the nest so ripley actually decides to go back and she builds herself this super awesome flamethrower and then she goes back to rescue newt and um, they almost die in the ordeal so Yes, that her true heroism really only comes out when Newt is in danger. danger. So this author suggests that in the process of protecting their children, actually Ripley and Sarah Connor become the ultimate human beings that are survivors, warriors, and also committed parents. Moving on to Captain Janeway, she also occupies the position of mother to her crew. In the episode Q2, the omnipotent being Q, explicitly tells Janeway that you are not a mother in a biological sense, but you are certainly a mommy to this crew. When she tells Q that she knows nothing about motherhood after he asks her to help him raise his son, Q2. Yeah, interesting. Um, There's an earlier episode in Star Trek Voyager, it's called Q and the Grey, and I really love this episode. It was really cute because this omnipotent being Q comes to Captain Janeway. If you've watched Star Trek, you, knew, you know that Q just kind of appears. So one day he just appears in her bedroom and he's like, Janeway, I've chosen you to be the mother of my child. And Janeway is like, "Whoa, whoa, what the heck are you talking about? You know, I'm not gonna carry your child. Why would I do that? And then he says to Janeway, no, Because I'm the omnipotent Q, and you are the best that humanity has to offer. So, I want to, um, I've chosen you to, to carry my child, and this is an honor, and you should do it for me. And then, um, yeah, obviously Janeway ultimately refuses, and then Q rather, um, mates with one of the other Q, (laughs) okay, so... Yeah, anyway, that is kind of a a separate story, but, um, so then Q2 is actually his son that he got from the other Q, the Lady Q. So then, um, in this episode, there's this Q2, and then Q asks him to, uh, asks Janeway to take care of his son, or to babysit him, because Q2 is a bit mischievous, and he's a typical, like, teenager, naughty and um yeah so yes so some theorists there's one uh, her name is susan DeGaya. she also identifies janeway as a symbolic figure who embodies the essential feminine associations of motherhood home and land and then um they obviously she's also argued that this is a bad thing for captain janeway just like it is for ellen ripley so she says that janeway's motherhood like that of ripley ties her to essentialist female qualities such as intuition and caregiving, and according, according to another theorist named Deborah Shaw, contul- this ties her to compulsory heterosexuality as an institution that disempowers women. So, in the context of Voyager, this is also reinforced through Janeway's role as the crew's mother, or like her, their symbolic mother. Um, there are many instances where we see Janeway kind of act as the mother figure. There's also this reading between Janeway and Seven of Nine. So in the Radical Feminist episode, I, I discussed Janeway and Seven of Nine's relationship in terms of what fans have understood as being like a homosexual relationship. Um, but many other fans deny that reading, and then they say that this is a maternal relationship. So Janeway and Seven's relationship is especially maternal. Um, so there are many ways in which Janeway is kind of framed as the crew's mother. Now, I agree with this theorist, with Gaia. <laughs> however, even though conventional images of women and femininity are employed in Voyager, Janeway's status as captain and substitute mother to her crew subverts these myths. So if she was only a mother, I totally get it, but she's not. Actually, like I explained in the radical feminist and early liberal feminist episodes, Janeway has a lot of masculine characteristics too, and at the end of the day she is the captain. So she's not only the mother of the crew. That is quite different. I think that would be more like Counselor Deanna Troy. Uh, she's not a mother, but she has that like stereotypical feminine job of being a counselor, and she's an empath, so she's super like in tune with people's emotions and things. Obviously, Janeway is much different than that. So Janeway's motherhood does not necessarily empower her in the same way that Ripley and Sarah Connor are empowered through it, like I explained. But what it does allow her to do is to bring together the essence of feminine and masculine through the conventional associations of mother with care and nurture and of captain with reason and power. Furthermore, because these female qualities such as emotionalism, intuition and physicality support secondary associations of women with occupations like domesticity, food service and healthcare on the one hand and prostitution and pornography on the other, the fact that Janeway possesses these characteristics through her care for the crew while still being the powerful and authoritative captain of a starship subverts these associations. Janeway's role as the crew's surrogate mother is therefore crucial to her hybridity, which I have shown to be a key characteristic of all of these heroines, so going back to that first episode um, on the background of second wave feminism and popular culture, uh, episode two, if you would like to listen to it. Basically, I argued there that what makes these heroines so special and what makes them more than simply being a copy of the male hero in a female body is the fact that they have this hybridity between masculinity and femininity. So yes, I have explored that throughout this mini-series on Second Wave Feminism. If you would like to listen to all of them at once, there is a playlist on my YouTube channel entitled Second Wave Feminism. My YouTube channel is The Sci-Fi Feminists, so you can go there and listen to the rest of the series there, or just listen on any platform that you are listening to. I really hope that you enjoyed this mini series on second wave feminism. I um, shared all of the research I have done on it. A lot of it is what other people said, but a lot of it is also my analysis and my opinion. And then next I will be talking about something a bit newer. So I hope you look forward to next week's episode and please leave me some comments. Uh, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening on there, please like the video and, um, please I really appreciate your support so thank you very much for listening and then this wraps up this mini-series on second wave feminism and on popular culture especially sci-fi Ellen Ripley Captain Janeway and Sarah Connor thank you very much for listening to this mini-series I hope you found it informative and then this is the sci-fi feminist signing off for now goodbye This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Random Trek Review, a Star Trek Review Podcast. Okay, well, it's one of those things where, like, you would expect, like, as medical history gets better and everything, like, life expectancy gets longer. Just like we've experienced in our own kind of world and planet right like it's way better now than it was 50 years ago versus 100 versus 200 so versus 5,000 years ago where you'd be lucky to live to like 30 yeah exactly we'd <laughs> already be done and dusted my friend well or we'd be super old right we'd be like the village elders <laughs> <laughs> loading holosuite preview program for starbase one the star trek online podcast i don't really think that's a good idea i order you to do it right now Morning. the structural integrity field has collapsed this is admiral quinn you will be assigned to starbase one welcome to starbase one i'm colin i'm admiral aaron i'm dave i'm steve and i'm tom starbase one is a dedicated star trek online podcast if you're a first time listener hello if you're a dedicated decade listener and you've been wondering where the hell we are we're back Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Star Podlog, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast. Well, and and it's amazing read, reading that description of the movie because if I was going to write a description of Star Wars, that's not exactly what I would say. <laughs> 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 but but I mean, but yeah, yeah, it's neat to go back and read these, and you are going, wow, that's just you know, they they don't really make it sound as exciting there, but they still, I mean, they make it look like yeah, you want to see it, but but not for for those reasons exactly.